Well, I'm very humbled and very honoured to be here, so thank you. And I also understand that DAPO may have press-ganged a number of you to be here, so just want to let you know I don't care one little bit. I'm just very, very humbled that you have come. So as Kate said, I'm going to talk a bit about the recognition of belligerency, uh, which is a fairly old doctrine, uh, but one I think of uh, that requires a bit of revisiting, and have a look just at the end at what some of the... Um, some of the benefits that looking to the recognition of belligerency as a doctrine might give us when we try to deal with the law of armed conflict, some of the challenges in the law of armed conflict, LOAC, uh, in relation to non-international armed conflict today. Uh, so I'll use a few acronyms as we go. I'll, I'll often talk about LOAC, uh, I'll often say NIAC, non-international armed conflict, and I'll refer quite routinely to OAGs, organised armed groups. So if you, if you have any questions about what those uh, acronyms are, uh, please just pull me up as we're going and I'll, I'll talk about them as we go. All right, so to start with, the, the start point when you're dealing with the law of armed conflict and looking back into uh, legal history of, of LOAC in particular, is that many of the, of the uh, difficulties we encounter in applying the law of armed conflict or, or finding fixes for what are alleged to be lacuna in the law of armed conflict, we tend to deal with through exegesis on the principles that we developed since 1949 in particular. And this is generally taken with a view to progressive development of the law, all a good thing. Now, nowhere is this more apparent right now than in how the law is grappling and trying to deal with the concept of the organised armed group, particularly in NIAC, and the legal obligations, if any, that attach to an, an, an organised armed group. But this area, as you'll be aware, is subject to very thin legislation and very fragile crystallisation. But sometimes when we're looking for coherence and crystallisation in these, these difficult issues, these challenges, we tend to ignore the potential guidance that we get from some of the history of the law of war. And in some situations, the law of war from the 19th century, early 20th century, offered very coherent packages of, of concepts and schemes which allowed us to deal with uh, some of the challenges, which I'll talk about in a little while. Uh, so what I'm going to look at is one scheme from that traditional or customary law of war, and that is the recognition of belligerency. This was a fairly coherent, well-practised scheme for characterising the status of belligerent groups, which I'm going to call the organised armed group, the OAG, and their legal relationship with both their parent state against whom they were rebelling, I'll call that the conflict state, and with other states with whom they needed to uh, engage for a number of different reasons, we'll call them third states. Herbert Smith, in his, his magisterial treatise in 1932, Great Britain, Law of Nations, said this. He said, The papers in the Record Office dealing with the problem of belligerent recognition are very numerous, particularly in the files which contain the opinions of the law officers. I'll refer to quite a number of the opinions of the law officers as we go through says, but from 1825 onwards, the general lines of policy appear to have been settled and the questions which arise are simply those of applying recognised principles to varying states of fact. Smith is indicating as early as 1932 that the doctrine on the recognition of belligerency was a well-established, well-settled, thoroughly coherent and well-understood and well-utilised part of the law of war. So for some reason it seems to have fallen off the radar. And, and I think we can have a talk about that uh, towards the end. But what I'm going to look at is the intensely practical purposes it served uh, in dealing with the relationships, legal and, and, and quasi-legal, between three sets of actors. The organised armed group, the conflict state and third states. 
So what I'll deal with briefly is, a, is an outline of the recognition of belligerency as a scheme, and, and there's a handout there which just tries to summarise that for you briefly. I'll then focus on the purposes of the scheme of belligerency, looking at those three actors in particular. What did they get from the recognition of belligerency as a scheme? And then ask about ask some questions about whether the reinvigoration of this scheme might offer us a way ahead in dealing with some of the challenges we currently face in the law of armed conflict, particularly in relation to NIAC. What I won't deal with explicitly in this session, but very happy to talk about and have discussions about afterwards, is the post-1949 legal coexistence, or not, of the doctrine on the recognition of belligerency and whether the post-1949 architecture for the law of armed conflict, as it's become, still allows space for the doctrine of recognition of belligerency. My own view is that it does, and I'm happy to say that on occasion DAPO actually agrees with me, and if DAPO agrees with me, I think that's a good, a good point, because if I disagree with DAPO, I'm wrong. So what was the uh, scheme, the recognition of belligerency? The basic effect, the summary of the scheme is on that little handout for you. The basic effect was recognition of belligerency transformed what we would today think of as an internal armed conflict or a non-international armed conflict into an armed conflict of indeterminate label, so it didn't label the armed conflict, but subject to a very clear legal framework. That is, the legal framework which applied on state-against-state armed conflict. This was called the law of war. And it also brought into play the legal framework that would then apply between those two conflict parties, the state and the organised armed group, and third states, also known as the law of neutrality. It was, in essence, a three-level scheme. The first level was rebellion. You'll see there's a little quote extract from Latipak's magisterial book in 1947 on recognition of international law. That itself is an indication that we seem to have lost something because you know, fully one-third of this book was dedicated to the recognition of belligerency and the three-level scheme. It seems to have just fallen off the radar. It's a fascinating study in itself. So rebellion, is, as, and you can read the Latipak quote there, was criminality pure and simple. So this would be equivalent today to current less than NIAC, riot, ratbaggery, criminality, that sort of thing. And if you're looking for a judicial expression of this, then if you have a look at a famous case, the Ambrose Light, a case from New York in 1885, it talks about the difference between criminality, this rebellion context, and other levels such as insurgency. Insurgency, the next level, is different. It's a quasi-legal level. It had political... It was a political level, a political title, a political uh, status, but it did carry some legal implications. And again, louder pack, he says, insurgency, so far as foreign states are concerned, results on the one hand from a determination that these states will not recognise the rebellious parties of belligerent, the next level in the scheme we'll get to in a moment, on the ground that there's absent one of the, the four elements of the test, but that they're not just mere ratbags, they're not just mere rebels, they're actually entitled to some better consideration than mere criminality. And the result would be that, as we'll talk about in a little while, the insurgent mariners would not be treated as pirates. So rebel mariners would be treated as pirates, our criminals. Insurgent mariners would often not be treated as pirates, provided they'd only attacked the vessels of the conflict state. If they hadn't attacked third state vessels, they would be treated as political asylum seekers, in essence. And again, a great case out of the US Supreme Court is the Three Friends, which is a case about uh, some uh, US citizens fitting out a, a vessel in Florida um, to support the Cuban insurgents in the, late, uh, in the late 19th century. Again, draws quite clearly on this scheme to set out why the judgment 
why a particular element of the judgment was applied. The third level in the scheme was belligerency. And Rosalind Higgins's test, which I've put there, is, is often cited and is, has been fairly consistent for about 150, 170 years. First, the existence within a state of a widely spread armed conflict. Second, the occupation and administration by rebels of a substantial portion of the territory. Third, the conduct of hostilities in accordance with the rules of war through armed forces responsible to an identifiable authority. So far, this is looking a bit familiar for any of those who study the additional protocols. And the fourth aspect, however, was the existence of circumstances which make it necessary for third parties to define their attitude by acknowledging the status of belligerency. So this is quite an interesting test. In law of armed conflict, there's very few places, there's actually quite a lot of hidden places, where political uh, decisions come into a legal test. But this is one of those few places where, quite overtly, a political decision becomes an element, in fact, the ultimate element, of a test, a legal test, for the status of belligerency. So that's the three-level scheme. We're really going to focus on what happened when someone was given the status of belligerency, an organised armed group was given the status of belligerency in that scheme, the highest level in that scheme. So what purposes did that scheme or that status serve? The primary interest of the international community was clearly uh, centred on humanitarianism. There's some great correspondence uh, in the UK Foreign Office uh, that relates to the then Austrian Chancellor, Prince Metternich's assessment of the Greek rebellion in the Ionian Islands in 1821 to 1825. Now, Lord Canning uh, was in correspondence with Wellesley, Lord Wellesley in Vienna was saying, I'll just quote it because it, it's, very, uh, it's very, um, very pithy, the doctrine of Prince Metternich that the Greeks as rebels are not entitled to the same rights of war as legitimate belligerents is one of which we think His Highness would do well to weigh all the consequences before he promulgates it to the world. The practical enforcement of that doctrine could have no other effect than to convert the contest, which has been brought in great measure by our exertions, into one of regular and civilised character, into one of indiscriminate rapine and massacre. So quite clearly, the, the international concern and the status of recognition of belligerency focused on the concept of humanitarianism. There was this drive to reduce the barbarity of civil war, of internal armed conflicts. The US Supreme Court, in a case called Ford and Sujit, similarly stated that this was the whole purpose of the recognition of belligerency of the Confederate States during the US Civil War. It was that belligerent rights as belonged under the law of nations to the armies of independent governments engaged in war to each other were applied across the parties, quote, in the interest of humanity and to prevent the cruelties of reprisals and retaliations. So that's, that's well and good, but for a realist international lawyer, uh, those amongst you who, who bear that label, it's hardly a sufficient purpose. So let's look at the three discrete actors and try and work out what the, the purposes that this doctrine of recognition of belligerency might have served for them. Let's start with the conflict state. The first benefit they got was in means and methods, because the conflict state gained the legal ability to employ the law of war, as it was then known, use the rules on means and methods of warfare against the organised armed group, and also to call on the law of neutrality in relation to the activities of third states as they touched upon the conflict as a whole. So during the heyday of the doctrine in the, uh, in the 1800s and uh, the early 1900s, uh, this benefit was most routinely expressed or understood in maritime terms as opening up to the conflict state an absolutely unimpeachable right to declare and enforce a blockade against the rebel party. So they could declare a blockade against the organised armed groups against their ports and coasts, and that then gave them a valid power to exercise that blockade against all comers, 
not only against the rebel group, of course, but against all third states. And that would include, therefore, the neutral shipping, the shipping of neutral third states destined for rebel ports. Interestingly, in criticising the outrage of union officials in relation to the UK declaration of neutrality with respect to both the Union and the Confederacy, uh, their blockade during the US Civil War, James Lorimer, who was a US international law scholar, observed in 1883, anyone acquainted with the law of nations knew perfectly well that although a country might put down an insurrection against its authority, it had no power or right to interfere with neutral commerce without giving the insurgents a belligerent character. So there's absolutely zero doubt that the recognition of belligerency brought into play the law of war at sea, as was understood to apply between two states. The second interesting benefit, the conflict state, because you have to ask what benefit does a conflict state get by recognising, giving some quasi-legal status to the rebels? The first is the means and methods, gets to use maritime law of warfare in particular. The second was, interestingly, state responsibility, because a recognition of belligerency also had the effect of excusing the conflict state from responsibility and liability for damage inflicted by uh, the rebels upon the nationals and property, and particularly the ships, of neutral third states. During the Greek Rebellion, 1821 to 1825, against the Ottoman Empire, the UK's formal adoption of neutrality between the parties was expressly understood by everyone to have immunised the port, the Ottoman Empire, from having to deal with British claims for damages inflicted by the rebellious Greek party. In a legal advice of uh, May 19, 1823, Dr Lushington, who was then the Foreign Office Foreign Office legal advisor, was very clear that Great Britain would not, under present circumstances, be justified in demanding from the Turkish government any reparation or indemnity for any, British, uh, any losses that British subjects might sustain from the Greeks, though the general rule is undoubtedly that every state is responsible for, to foreigners for acts on its, uh, on, its, on its territory. But because of the recognition of belligerency of the Greek rebels, the Ottomans were no longer responsible for or liable for the damages incurred and the proper recourse was for the British government to take that to the provisional Greek rebel government to ask for compensation via that means. The same view was consistently taken, interestingly, by the US government. And as the American minister in uh, London at the time, uh, Adams, noted when the UK recognised the, the Confederacy's uh, status as belligerent by, by declaring British uh, neutrality after both the Union and the... Uh, uh, Confederacy had declared blockades. He said in May 1861, well, at any rate, there's one compensation. This act has released the government of the United States from responsibilities for any misdeeds of the rebels towards Great Britain. So it's quite clearly understood that when the status of belligerency was granted to the rebel group, they now bore the liability of their actions, not the territorial state. The third benefit that accrued to the, uh, to the conflict state was as already hinted, the application of neutrality law. This gave them the ability to deal with third states uh, through a structured process, the law of neutrality, and that meant they could apply, apply a blockade over the rebel ports and could exercise visiting search, could set out a contraband list, etc. And it also called into play uh, international law, such as the Paris Declaration, but more particularly domestic law designed to deal with uh, insurgency uh, situations and re rebellion situations and indeed belligerent situations, such as at the time the UK um, Foreign Enlistment Act and the US Neutrality Act. They were basically mirror acts called different things that looked very similar. It was also a very useful political tool because it was generally agreed that once the conflict state itself recognised the belligerency of the organised armed group against whom it was fighting, 
then it was very difficult for third states not to also follow suit and declare neutrality, which was also a tacit acceptance of the belligerency of the organised armed group in particular. And as a consequence, the, the, the conflict state, using the law of neutrality, um, could, could tarnish the conduct of third states with the legal, the legal opprobrium of supporting a rebel group, but also got to use the law of neutrality to confiscate uh, neutral third state shipping and contraband that was being used to support the rebels. Now, what state doesn't think that when you can seize contraband and prize without compensation, that is to get free stuff, that it can't be a good idea? Interestingly, I found yesterday in the archives a UK cabinet advice on Formosa and uh, mainland China uh, from 1957-58, which, which was concerned about whether the, the UK government should declare um, itself neutral in the conflict between Formosa, Taiwan and mainland China by recognising belligerency of both parties. Uh, and this issue about the legal opprobrium of being seen to support a rebel group over a government was actually quite seminal in the decision not to, uh, to, take, that, to take that step and to recognise belligerency. So that's the conflict state. Let's look for a minute at the organised armed group. For the organised armed group, the key um, benefit from the recognition of belligerency was that it brought with it a limited, temporarily, but also in terms of scope, international status and afforded uh, access to a, a fairly circumscribed but, but nevertheless important set of international legal rights. James Lorimer talked about the recognition of belligerency being the recognition of the inchoate state as a dual claimant for separate recognition. That is to say, the acknowledgement of its right to contend for recognition. But this recognition was not, as he went on to clarify, in any way a judgment either on the merits of their claim or on the probability of its ultimate vindication. So the very small package of rights that were legally accorded to the organised armed group when it achieved the status of a recognised belligerent centred around the law of war. So the primary right, as we'll talk about in a minute, was that they got to apply the law of war as was between states, but also that they, their, their opponent, the conflict state, the state they're fighting against, had to apply the law of war against them as if it was fighting another state. And this had very important consequences, we'll see in a moment, for things like uh, the status of prisoners of war. But it wasn't just those rights on means and methods in, in armed conflict. There were a couple of other little rights that accumulated along with this. There was no right to send or receive ambassadors, so that wasn't it. All communications were still informal. There was certainly no right to enter treaties. But interestingly, there was a right that was considered part of the package of rights that went to the organised armed group under recognition of literacy to do things like float bonds on the international market. So it's the package of rights that came with this status for the organised armed group was, was more than just those narrow rights in a law of armed conflict, law of war sense. There were a few other rights that accumulated as well, but they were very circumscribed in both time. They were only for the duration of the conflict uh, and also, as I said, in, in scope. A very good summary, I think, of this is provided by uh, Julius Puente, who wrote a, a treatise on international law from a US perspective in 1928, and he says the following. He says, Persons or vessels employed in the service of a self-declared government, the belligerent, thus acknowledged by the United States to main be maintaining its separate existence by war, must be permitted to prove the fact of their being actually employed in such service by the same testimony which would be sufficient to prove that such persons or vessels were employed in the service of an acknowledged state. 
but the seal of such unacknowledged government cannot be permitted to prove itself, and the fact that such persons or vessels are so employed may be proved without proving the seal. It's a very neat way to describe the way this circumscribed package of rights uh, was, was, was uh, articulated in relation to the doctrine of belligerency. <laughs> Means and methods, as we said, what it required was that the conflict state now had to use the international law of war in their operations against the rebels. And this basically meant, I'll, I'll quote Richard Darner here, who was the editor of Wheaton's uh, seminal Elements of International Law in 1866, said, if it is a war, then the insurgent cruisers are to be treated by foreign citizens and officials at sea and in port as lawful belligerents. If it's not a war, those cruisers are pirates and may be treated as such. Within foreign jurisdiction, if it is a war, the acts of the insurgents in the way of preparation and equipments for hostility may be breaches of neutrality laws. While if it's not a war, then they don't come into that category, but under the category of piracy or of crimes of municipal law. In an advice on the Cretan uh, insurrection of 1867, John Carslake, Charles Selwyn and Robert Fillimore, who were the Foreign Office legal advisers at the time, were very explicit. And they said that if the rebels were recognised as belligerents, then they could commission privateers. And this was permissible according to the general principles of international law. If they were not recognised as belligerents, then they could not commission privateers, and anyone so purporting was in fact to be treated either as insurgent or as a pirate. The second really significant benefit in terms of means and methods and, and the law of war in its use in bellow uh, sense was PW status, prisoner of war status. There was no doubt that the recognition of belligerency meant that captured fighters from the organised armed group now had to be treated as prisoners of war in the same way as captured members of the military forces of a state party had to be treated as, as, as prisoners of war. The logic of this is quite clear. The first is the humanitarian imperative. It would be illogical if both sides didn't apply the same uh, law of armed conflict because you would have no reduction in barbarity. And this was, this was clearly one of the, uh, the signal uh, aspects or driving forces behind a rebel group seeking the status of belligerent was that it could no longer be summarily executed, its fighters could no longer be summarily executed as, as either rebels or as pirates on the battlefield because they now had to be taken into custody and or taken into as prisoner of war status and kept for the duration of, of the conflict. The second was that state practice was clearly, uh, clearly expressed that uh, on the ground. And as we know, the Confederacy uh, soldiers were treated as prisoners of war during the, um, during the US Civil War. But there are many other instances as well. There's an advice by Christopher Robinson to Lord Canning in April 1823. This advice concerned representation by a British mother that her son, who had apparently been serving in a rebel vessel uh, in the service of a rebellion South American colony, had been captured by a Portuguese warship and taken to Lisbon to be detained. Robinson's opinion was very clear. He said the British government could make representations on behalf of British subjects. That's the, that's the rule. However, he said, if the lad had been serving on board a vessel bearing a commission against Portugal or exercising present hostilities against Portuguese ships, a belligerent party, he will be subject to be detained as a prisoner of war. A second example, my favourite example, is the rebellion by the Malagasy forces, which counted amongst its fighters both local hovers and a lot of British subjects uh, against French forces enforcing the French protectorate over Madagascar in the late 1890s. There were reports circulating back to London of a French policy of executing on site any British subjects who were captured serving in uh, the Malagasy forces against the French forces. 
And this had obviously agitated concern. So in 1895, Robert Reed and Frank Lockwood, the then Foreign Office Legal Advisers, were asked for an opinion by the War Office. The first couple of questions were directly on the point. I'll read those questions because they're very important. The first is whether the French authorities are entitled to discriminate between British subjects serving in the armed forces of the Malagasy government and the Hovers in the like service to the prejudice of the former. So the French policy, as it was understood, was that the Hovers would be detained, the Brits fighting in the Malagasy forces would be executed. The second question was whether the French authorities are entitled to shoot British subjects serving in the Hover forces, even when they're taken prisoner in open fight uh, during the pendency of the hostilities in Madagascar. And their, their legal uh, opinion was unequivocal. They said there's absolutely solid law on this. The answer is no. There is a belligerency status conflict going on and that the fact that the UK had not made a formal announcement as to its neutrality in that conflict was driven by the fact that that fourth element of the test was not necessary. There was no UK interest engaged until now that they'd had to make that declaration. But that didn't change the fact that there was a belligerency status conflict going on, that the Hover, the Malagasy forces, were an organised armed group of belligerent status and therefore all fighters in that group, regardless of whether they're Hovers or British subjects or any other subject, would be treated as prisoners of war. As a consequence, the French were most certainly not entitled to just shoot the British subjects regularly incorporated into the Hover forces on site upon capture in the, in, on the battlefield. And there's a 1944 memorandum, cabinet memorandum on the Polish Free Army, which basically says the same thing. It's widely understood to have been a warning to the Germans. It basically said, we recognise the Polish Free Army as a recognised belligerent force. And the purpose, which is quite explicit in the cabinet memorandum, is that this was a warning to the Germans that any captured Polish fighters would be treated as prisoners of war, not executed as rebels. The third benefit that the organised armed group therefore got was combatant status. And this meant that the organised armed group itself could commission warships, carry out blockades, visit and search, seize contraband, etc. The example often cited is the US uh, Confederate warship, the Sumter, which put into Curacao, a Dutch uh, colony, um, and Holland by this time had recognised the, the uh, belligerency of the Confederacy. And the commission of the Sumter's captain was accepted by Holland as legitimate, and the US Secretary of State at the time, Seawood, put in a, a, a diplomatic cable and said, no, these guys are pirates, you need to seize this vessel, etc. And, and the Dutch had said, no, we've recognised the Confederates' belligerency, therefore they are entitled to commission warships in the same manner as you are. We recognise this, this captain's commission and the warship's uh, commission, we're allowing it to go underway, come into our port, use our port facilities on the same basis as we allow Union vessels to do the same. The fourth and very interesting benefit that the organised armed group got was that it could tax activities and set up prize courts on its territory. And this was a recognition of, of the facts on the ground. But importantly, as we'll see when we talk about the, the, the conflict state in a moment, it had a a quid pro quo in that the conflict state didn't have to pay taxes or prize fees twice. I'll come to that in a minute. But this particular right to seize neutral vessels as prize if they were breaching a blockade established by the organised armed group, the recognised belligerent organised armed group, was very important. And it's actually the earliest element of the law or the doctrine on recognition of belligerencies. dates back as early as 1818, if not before where there was a particular case, the Santa Teresa del Jesus, which was a, a Spanish vessel captured by Buenos Aires insurgents, and the Spanish crown had said to the British, we want you, you've got a warship on station down there, we want you to go and recapture this vessel. And the legal advice was no. 
We've recognised the belligerency here of this rebel group, and therefore we have to be scrupulously neutralised between them. You cannot use a British warship to go and recapture this vessel to return it to Spain. If you do so, you are breaching neutrality. You are no longer neutral. You are on the side of one party to the conflict. And this was uh, played out again in the Greek rebellion where there was a, a deal of UK legal advice on Greek provisional government, rebellious party, belligerent status party, uh, prize courts, which had been set up. And the legal advice was that a number of British vessels, which had been seized by the rebellious Greeks and taken to this prize court and condemned as prize or part of their cargo condemned as prize, the legal advice was to the British government that that's all fair and good. You have recognised the Greek party as a, as a belligerent status party. Therefore, one of the consequences of that is if a British vessel breaches a blockade or a visit search cordon set up by that belligerent party, then they have to take the consequences. And that means they're subject to a valid prize court and therefore the British government has no, no dog in that fight. That private ship has breached neutrality and therefore the British government needs to stay out of that, leave the Greek prize court or the rebel prize court to do its job. So that brings us to the third states, like Britain, for example. The essence of belligerency lay in, for third states in that placed a legal framework around the relationship that they would have, this triangular relationship between a conflict state, the organised armed group, recognised the belligerent status, and themselves. And this was actually seen by third states to be the key to the recognition of belligerency. The relationship with the organised armed group that was... Uh, created for third states by recognition of belligerency, didn't just extend to neutrality and prize law, but also to, as I mentioned before, taxation and fiscal measures. And there's lots of legal advice in the Foreign Office legal uh, records that talks about British subjects, for example, during the Carlist Rebellion in northern Spain in the late uh, 1800s, where British subjects had agitated to the British government and said, you need to go to the government in Madrid, the state, the conflict state, and get us compensation because some of our Property has been destroyed or damaged by bombing of Carthagena. And the legal advice was no. Because they are recognised belligerent, they own things there now. You cannot take the responsibility for the damage there to the state, Madrid. It is the responsibility of the organised armed group to deal with. In the same way as those people living in Carthagena, those British uh, nationals, when the uh, organised armed group, the rebels recognised belligerents, said you will pay these taxes for the import of, gear, of, 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 uh, of um, cargoes, etc., that it was valid to pay those taxes and then the government of Madrid had no claim for a second payment of those taxes. That payment to the rebel group was considered good in international law as final satisfaction and the, rebel, the Madrid government had no claim because of the recognised status of the organised armed group had no claim to reclaim those taxes, prize fees, whatever it might be, a second time. So that's some of the purposes of the recognition of belligerency, thinking about that triangular relationship between the three parties we're concerned with. So thinking about those purposes, what insight, what benefits might revisiting the doctrine on the recognition of belligerency provide when we're dealing with the mod, some of the modern challenges to uh, the law of armed conflict as it applies in non-international armed conflict situations? The first is battlefield conduct, because an integral, integral uh, part of the recognition of belligerency scheme was that the organised armed groups became legally bound, not de facto, but de jure bound, as an organisation to comply with the law of war. So the customary scheme was very clear that recognition of belligerency bound the organisation, the rebel group, and its individuals to comply with the law of war as if they were a state military force. 
de jure, rather than as a matter of uh, policy or de facto. This is really interesting, because if we take that into the modern issue of the law of armed conflict that it applies in non-international armed conflict, we have the interesting conundrum of whether the interpretation of that obligation for the rebel group to de jure apply the law of war would be one path to getting the rebel group to have obligations de jure, not de facto, de jure, in relation to human rights. Because many of the human rights obligations that have been imported into the law of armed conflict are part of the law of war. And therefore, this de jure obligation, if it were applied today, would incorporate into that a number of the human rights obligations that we now consider to be integral or part of, stitched into the law of armed conflict. This is quite interesting because there is a debate, as you will undoubtedly know, going on about how do we make rebel groups comply with the law of armed conflict. Now, there's an enforcement aspect to that. That's a different issue. But the other side of that is the hurdle is, well, we can't, at law, we can't make them de jure need to comply as an organisation with the law of armed conflict. We only do that by making them comply with the law of their conflict state, which, by the way, they're having a, a rebellion against. This offered a path where you could, at law, in the international arena, make that organisation, that rebel group, actually uh, subject to the law as a matter of law, not as a matter uh, of, um, of policy. So I think that opens up some pretty interesting uh, possibilities. And I think in that respect, it'll be very interesting to see where the ICRC's um, uh, revisiting of its original Roots of Behaviour uh, study, which they've just started uh, now, leads us, because it'd be interesting to see where motivations in terms of battlefield compliance with the law of armed conflict are in terms of organised armed groups. Geneva Call and the like do some great work, uh, but that's focused really on the sort of moral and humanitarian side of organised armed groups. What the recognition of belligerency offered was a way to make the armed groups have legal obligations, how you enforce them again, as I said, it's a different issue, but to have legal obligations in relation to the law of armed conflict and therefore in modern parlance those parts of human rights that are stitched into the law of armed conflict. The, the second, I think, issue would be this, this, of the obvious one, is the status of captured organised armed group fighters. So if the old doctrine of belligerency meant that once a rebel group was given the status of a belligerent, its fighters, when captured, were treated as prisoners of war, in the same way as the uniformed soldier of a military force, a state military force, when captured, was treated as a prisoner of war. This offers some way ahead in the current imbroglio we have, I think best represented by um, the case, uh, the British case, Sir Mohammed and Ministry of Defence, which is really quite a, it's an issue of significant legal nuance and very serious operational consequence because we're not quite sure since Sir Mohammed where the legal authority to detain in non-international armed conflict precisely resides, and particularly when you're dealing with the fighter elements of, of an organised armed group. However, under the recognition of belligerency doctrine, you just applied the international law of war in relation to prisons of war. This would serve a couple of consequences. The first is it would overcome the problem, the hurdle we have with the Sardar Muhammad case and, and the very important <coughs> lacuna issue that it points to. It points to, I'm sorry, because the law of armed conflict in, in its old tense, the, the, the recognition of belligerency was very clear. Captured organised armed group fighters of belligerent status, prisoner of war, hold until the end of, uh, of, of the conflict and then release. A related issue is labelling because one of the issues we have with the current scheme of dealing with 
uh, organised armed group fighters who are captured, is that they tend to be uh, considered as criminals. Now, that's long been a part of um, less than belligerency status understandings. Insurgents were now captured by their conflict state, treated as criminals, of course. Back then, they were summarily executed routinely. Criminals, rioters and that, of course, are treated as criminals. But fighters of a belligerent status organised armed group were treated as prisoners of war. So at the moment, the problem we have is that when you capture the fighters of an organised armed group, they are not treated as PWs, they're treated as criminals. And often what is done is that the law of armed conflict as the stigmatising crime is put to the side and we tend to focus on using the label of terrorism as the way to deal with them. Now, one of the issues dealt with the roots of behaviour concept is that often when you... If, if the fighter in the organised armed group knows that at the end... The end result of capture is that even if they had complied with the law of armed conflict on the battlefield, they'd only done things in accordance with the law of armed conflict such that if they were wearing uniform the state military force, they'd be a PW, they wouldn't be prosecuted because they never breached lower. But because they don't have that status, when they're captured, they're going to be prosecuted as a criminal anyway. More so, they're probably going to be prosecuted as a terrorist because that's the stigmatising label that's applied and they're going to have a long prison sentence or, or possibly execution act, even if all of their conduct was in compliance with the law of armed conflict. And so clearly one of the roots of behaviour issues is, well, why would I subject myself to that? And therefore you get into the vicious spiral of atrocity because I want to resist being caught, and if I get caught, they're going to kill me anyway, so I commit atrocities. Frederick McGray has written a piece in the latest um, edition of the uh, International um, review of the Red Cross, dealing with exactly this issue. And I, I, I think he's onto something there, that perhaps international law needs to take a more nuanced approach to, to organised armed groups and look at the ones that, to the extent we can say, act within the law and treat them a bit differently than those perhaps that act outside the law routinely. The fourth area we might get some uh, guidance in from the law on... Uh, the doctrine on the status of, uh, of the recognition of literacy is the continuous uh, combat function debate. So to summarise this, I'll just say as follows. As you will know, if you've read uh, anything in uh, on the whole organised armed group fighter status, there is a debate about whether the cook, we'll use him as the talismanic person, the cook in the organised armed group is fulfilling or not a continuous combat function because if he is filling a continuous combat function, he comes within the targetable envelope of those who are fighter parts of the organised armed group. But if he is not, and there is argument either way, of course, if he's just a cook, he's not CCF, you cannot target him. Now, the debate on this, if you followed, has been you know, getting right down into hair-splitting and, and passing now. In some ways, recognition of belligerency just puts that to the side, because the answer is quite clear. Under the law of war, if you're the cook, in the state military forces, you're targetable. Full stop, end of story. Because that is then reciprocally applied to the belligerent status organised armed group, there was no question. The cook in the organised armed group was also therefore targetable in the same way as the cook in the military force was targetable. So it does offer a way around that hurdle. In a broader sense, I think there's two issues, and I'll just briefly note these and then, and then we'll stop. Giving states the option to explicitly declare support for a rebel group that meets the, the criteria, those four criteria expressed by other, amongst others by, uh, on, the, on the handout I've given you there. This raises an interesting issue. During the 70s, there was some academic uh, writing on this. Jenner, Kelly, uh, John Norton Moore, uh, Richard Fork and a few others started to deal with the issue of, well, actually, how does the doctrine and recognition of belligerency 
fit with Article 2.4 of the Charter and the norm of non-interference? It's a very good question, and they raised it in the 70s and then it fell off the radar. The interesting thing is there must be a way for it to fit. Why? Because it used to. So Article 2.4 is the current expression of the norm, but the norm is customary. And so prior to the UN Charter, there was also a norm of non-interference, and yet the doctrine on the recognition of belligerency was considered to be adequately and coherently interwoven with that norm that it was OK. So there must be a way where the doctrine on recognition of belligerency could still fit within the current norm, expressed as it is through Article 2.4. So that's an interesting issue, I think. The second is a question, more than anything. It relates to attribution and responsibility. I wonder if the recognition of belligerency and the de jure distinction between the responsibility of the conflict state and the organised armed group, given belligerent status, is evidence of a customary precursor to the current emerging debate we have about the unwilling, unable state. Particularly as it's sort of been signalled, I guess, through the issue of collective self-defence and in the letters to the Security Council by Australia, the US, uh, Iran, Turkey, uh, the UK and, and until recently in the Canadian Parliament. Because if international law has previously recognised a de jure, not de facto, de jure division of responsibility and attribution between the conflict state and a recognised belligerent organised armed group in situations where the size, organisation, territorial control of that armed group met the requirements and said that that organised armed group is the legally responsible party, then I wonder if it's a long step from that well-attested legal doctrine to one which, when you're faced with a situation, draws the same conclusion about the conflict state's inability to enforce its writ over that area, thus opening up an option to treat the organised armed group as a separate entity liable to targeting, independent of any need to seek territorial state consent. So a question. Thank you.